Church in the Wild. Today's message will be titled Joy in the Wild. Last week was Hope in the Wild or Future Hope in the Wild. This week is Joy in the Wild. And last week, as we began to explore the great salvation of God and, and the, the salvation that He has given us, we, we begin to talk about how Christians are filled with this great hope and literally a living hope, a hope that is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. And this kind of hope and thinking about the hope we have in Christ based on the resurrection and our eternal inheritance, we as Christians are enabled to live out our faith in a world full of troubles full of hardships, full of difficulties. And as Peter continues this week to encourage the church in the wild, he will move into talking about great joy, a great hope last week, and now this great joy that we should have in the midst of this difficult life. You know, one of the great testimonies of this reality, of having joy in the midst of hardships, is found in American history as the African slaves experienced untold sufferings. You know, tomorrow is June the... Today is June 19th. Today is Juneteenth. And this was the day that slaves in Texas finally got the word they were free. They had... The Emancipation Proclamation had already been proclaimed, but they, they just now got the word. And so today is the day that African Americans celebrate finally everyone hearing that they were free. And if we look at the testimony of the African slaves, so many of them were believers in Christ. So many of them were Christians. And, and they, they were sold on the auction block. Husbands were was taken from families, mothers from children, children from siblings. They were bought and sold, put in chains, beaten, worked to exhaustion. Truly, they lived in subhuman conditions. Yet, so many of them sang their faith. One of the great traditions of, of African-American Christians is that they can sing their faith. I'm most time better than white people, right? They can just sing their faith. There's just, and I think, honestly, I think it comes from the, the, the roots and the traditions of singing their faith from the beginning that they were in this country. They would look to heaven. These African slaves would look to heaven past their immediate circumstances and they would sing. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see coming forward to carry me home? A band of angels coming after me, coming forward to carry me home. If you get there before I do, coming forward to carry me home, tell all my friends that I'm coming to, coming forward to carry me home. The brightest day I ever saw coming forward to carry me home is when Jesus washed my sins away, coming forward to carry me home. I'm sometimes up and sometimes down, coming forward to carry me home, but still my soul feels heavenly bound, coming forward to carry me home. The kind of joy that it takes to sing that song in the midst of slavery only comes from the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Ghost. It's the only reason. What a great testimony we have. I love what John Calvin wrote. John Calvin wrote, Sorrow does not prevent joy. On the contrary, it gives place to it. 
Sorrow does not prevent joy. On the contrary, it gives place to it. So let's continue in 1 Peter. Let's continue in this series, Church in the Wild, and let's talk about joy in the wild. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the testing or the tested genuineness of your faith or proof of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I, I love how Peter starts out here. Peter starts out and says, in this you rejoice. Now, the this that he's referring to is the salvation in, in this life that we have now. In this salvation, we rejoice. He's talking about that chain. Remember that chain I talked about last week, that eternal chain, which it reaches back into eternity past and goes into eternity future and has within that chain all the links made by God has Jesus coming. It has you being brought to life. It has your eternal salvation secure for you. In this, we rejoice. This language of rejoicing has its... Uh, is in keeping with the Old Testament expression, rejoice in Yahweh, rejoice in the Lord. This has been something that believers in Yahweh have always been doing. You know this, right? From the beginning of time, those who love Yahweh rejoice. We're encouraged to do it. We're commanded to do it here. We're being praised for doing it. The, the Greek uh, verb here for rejoice carries the idea of greatly rejoicing or abundantly rejoicing. So this isn't just a little bit of rejoicing. This isn't just rejoicing that you're comfortable with at times. This is talking about abundant, expressive joy. In fact, some Bible translations actually translate it that way. Great joy, great rejoicing, abundant rejoicing, overflowing rejoicing. We're talking here not simply about a fleeting sense of happiness, right? That comes and goes. A a fleeting sense of happiness comes and goes. This is indeed a fruit of the Spirit. This is something that comes because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and is constantly working this joy out in our lives. It means to be supremely or divinely happy. I love that translation. You know, uh, um, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is listing off the Beatitudes, right? Blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is. You could really translate that word blessed to be divinely happy. Divinely happy are the meek. Divinely happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So, This isn't superficial feeling. This is a continual joy because our relationship is with God and his salvation has been given to us. Amen. Now. Our verses this morning 
are an inclusio. This is a literary technique where the beginning and the end basically are talking about the same thing. In our case, we've got verse 6, greatly rejoicing, and then we have in verse 8 at the end, greatly rejoicing. So we have rejoice at the beginning and the end, right? Just think of it as two brackets. You've got a, a bookend on one with a bracket that says rejoice, and at the end it says rejoice. And then what an inclusio does is in the middle, sandwiched between these two ends, in the middle is stuff that's going to modify rejoicing or stuff that's going to explain the rejoicing. Does that make sense? So we've got rejoicing at the beginning, rejoicing at the end, and in the middle, sandwiched in the middle, is the stuff that's going to make that rejoicing even pop off the page better. So in our text, we have three those statements. The sandwich stuff in the middle are three those statements, okay? You've got statements here uh, like, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Though you do not see him. Though you do not now see him. So we've got three those statements sandwiched in. So my outline today is very simple. We're going to talk about rejoicing. Then we're going to talk about though, though, though. And then we're going to talk about rejoicing. Okay. The first, though you have been grieved by trials, though you have been grieved by trials, we rejoice in our salvation. We have joy right now, even though things are difficult. So let's talk about these trials. Here's what Peter does for us is Peter basically just talks about trials in five different ways. He mentions five things. One. These trials, look at it with me, these trials, it says, are for a little while. They are brief in duration compared to what? Eternity. It may seem like it's lasting a long time now, but compared to eternity, any trial you face in this life is short. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Let's say you live to be a hundred. And let's say for a hundred years, your life is very, 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 very difficult. After you've been there for 10,000 years, how long is that hundred years going to look? Real short. When we've been on the new earth for a million years, how long is that hundred years going to look? Very, very short. So compared to eternity... All the trials that we face are for a little while. Paul calls them momentary afflictions. Now, that's crazy because Paul got afflicted with a lot. I mean, Paul, remember the list in the, in the Corinthian letters that he lists out about how difficult things were for him? I was beaten this many times and I was shipwrecked this many times and I was stoned this many times and I was left for dead this many times. And he says these are momentary afflictions compared with what? The weight of glory. The weight of glory. So Peter says, we're going to rejoice even though right now we've got some momentary little while afflictions. We're going to rejoice in our salvation. Then second, he says, if necessary. If necessary. 
these trials are purposeful. Christian, we've, we've got to get our minds around this. When Peter says, if necessary, he is indicating that the troubles come from God with a purpose. Let me say this as clear as I can. If you are born again and you have this great salvation that we talked about last week, there is no such thing as purposeless trouble. No such thing as purposeless suffering. All suffering that you go through, all the trials, all the difficulties, all the, the, all the troubles, any, however you want to phrase it or call it, all of them are there for a purpose by God. Every one of them. God brings them into the believer's life to serve the believer's life. Namely, to make them look like Jesus. To make us into the new humanity. So God does not sovereignly bring things into our life or sovereignly allow things into our life that will not be used to make us look more like Jesus. If that suffering is going to come into our life and it's not going to help us make us look like Jesus, then guess what? God will not allow it. God will not allow something in your life that doesn't have the purpose of making you like Jesus. What great comfort there is in this. No purposeless trials in your life. Three, he calls them various trials. They're varied in form. The suffering that his immediate audience was dealing with was all kinds of suffering. He wasn't referring to one pressing trial or one type of persecution in view here. Later, Peter, it's, it, it's beautiful because here's what Peter does. Peter uses this word for various, okay, this Greek word for various. He says, you are experiencing various trials. He uses that Greek word. Then what he does is later on, he's going to talk about the graces of God. And you know what he calls them? He uses the same Greek word, the various graces or the, the, the diverse graces of God. So you've got diverse trials coming in your life. All right. They, they may be because you're battling some sin and your flesh is and you're just at war with it. It may be that you're being persecuted for your faith. It may be that you have a, an illness or a sickness. It may be that you are getting attacked from the outside. It, it may be that, that all these different circumstances that may be coming, these diverse trials that are in your life. And then later, Peter's going to say, but there are diverse graces of God that supersede all of those diverse trials. So whatever trials you're dealing with, there is always a grace of God to cover for that trial in every single aspect of your life. There is no form or trouble or suffering or danger or trial that, the, that a facet of God's grace does not cover. God's grace is sufficient for all of the trials we face. So they are for a little while. They are purposeful. They are varied. And they prove the value of faith. He says, so that the genuineness of your faith, or it could be translated, the proof of your faith. Now, now, this word proof or genuine is used to describe the process of discovering what a metal is worth. Okay, so it was a word that was used to describe the process of discovering a metal's purity, 
discovering its true content, discovering its true value. So the trials that are in our lives are there as a means of testing our faithfulness to God. Now, I want to talk about this just for a second because sometimes we think, I I think we get confused when we start talking about the testing of God in our lives, okay? Here is what the testing of God is for us. It is to reveal to us where our faith is at and to demonstrate to the world where our faith is at. So the testing that we go through demonstrates to us how genuine the value, the weight of our faith. So Peter is saying we go through these various purposeful, temporary trials in order that our faith is proved, in order that we demonstrate that our faith is genuine and real. Listen, if you aren't a Christian and you are going through a life of various trials, you will just, let's say you're just doing religion, right? You're just coming to church, you're doing religion, you're going through the motions, you're, you're, you're experiencing the religious Christian context, but your life gets super hard and super difficult. Guess what? You will not last. Eventually, you will leave this place because it ain't worth it. I can't tell you the people that I know personally that talked about loving Jesus and when things didn't go the way they wanted them to go, abandoned their claim to love Jesus. We as Christians who are truly born again, When we go through suffering and trials, what it's doing is it's proving that we got real, genuine faith. So let me ask you this question, church. Those of you who are facing various trials right now, do you love Jesus? See, the fact that you got faith in the midst of those trials is proving your faith is real. Because if it wasn't real, you just would have gone a long time ago and and just clocked out and been done. I'm out. But the fact that we're still clinging to Jesus through various trials means our faith is real and genuine. It's got great value. And it's showing all the people around us that this thing is real. You see, no one finds your faith valuable because you're a millionaire, have two or three homes, a boat, and a Benz. They they find your faith valuable when things are tough and you're still loving Jesus. That's when they say, what is it about that that is so special? This is the proving of your faith. Real, genuine, salvific faith is more valuable than anything this world can offer. That's why he's talking about gold with it. Gold was the most valuable thing that the early, the the, the first century could think of. And Peter's saying, your faith is way more valuable than gold. It's way more valuable than anything this world can give you. Jesus is worth more. Number five, you're rejoicing in the midst of these temporary, purposeful, varied, proving trials of your faith results in praise, glory, and honor. 
Peter says that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you can read that and think, well, of course, when Jesus comes back, because our faith has been preserved and we still have faith, when Jesus comes back, we're going to give him all the praise, all the glory and all the honor. Here's the thing, though. This verse is not talking about us praising Jesus. It's, ta- it's talking about God praising us. Say, what? What? You know God is going to praise over you, give you glory, and give you honor. Because you had faith in Jesus in the midst of trials and troubles and difficulties, when all worldly sense would say, what are you doing? Abandon that whole thing. It's nonsense and it's ridiculous. But because you cling to Jesus and you kept loving Jesus and you kept pursuing Christ, when Jesus comes back, you will receive praise and glory and honor for your faithfulness. You see, we we get really uncomfortable when we start talking about Jesus rewarding us because we're like, we don't want to be like the, the, the people that are the health and wealth and prosperity people. Listen, do you know the health, wealth and prosperity people have a lot of it right? They just got the timing all wrong. When Jesus comes back, I'm going to be prosperous and wealthy and healthy and I I am going to succeed and have more and do more than I could ever dream. It's just that the timing is wrong. It's not now. Now is the proving of the faith. Now is the testing of the faith. Now is the, the forming and the shaping us to look like Jesus so that when he returns, we get the great reward. And and I want to say just for a minute, just these three words, praise. You say, how is he going to praise us? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Is that not praise? The Bible tells us that's what God's going to say to his people. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You made it to the end. You say, what about glory? Are we going to look like Jesus? How, what is going to be more glorious than that? We are going to get resurrected bodies. We are going to look like Jesus. What about honor? The Bible says we're going to receive rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ for what we have done in faith for the glory of Jesus. So these trials, right, he says rejoice, though you have these trials. They're temporary. They're purposeful. They are resulting in praise and glory. They are varied. and They prove your faith. Second, though. Though number two, he moves on and he says in verse seven, well, after verse seven, you know, verse seven, he just talks about Jesus coming back and then he goes back into the present. I I like that Peter does this. You can see it all all throughout the book. Peter's going to go future, present, future, present, future, present, future, present. You know why he does that? Because he wants to keep reminding you, you're in the present, look to the future. You're in the present, look to the future. You're in the present, look to the future. So he just talks about the future. Right. When Jesus comes back, you're going to get praise and honor and glory. And he says, though, right now, back in the present, you don't see him. You don't see him. But you love him. Peter is aware that his audience has not seen the resurrected Jesus Christ like he has. See, Peter got to see Jesus with his eyes resurrected from the dead. His audience did not. They had not been in the room where he appeared to the apostles. 
They weren't on the shore when Jesus cooked them fish. They weren't even on the mountain when He ascended. They had never seen Jesus with their eyes, yet they loved Him. Peter must have had such humble admiration for these people. Because think about it. Peter lived with Jesus for three years. He struggled to love Jesus like he should. So Peter must be, Peter's like, I lived with him. I, I saw him every day for three years. I saw him resurrected. And my faith was a battle. Man, these people I'm right, they've never seen him. And yet they love him as much as I do. Wow. And of course, he wasn't just talking about them. This applies to us. How do I love Jesus? I've never even seen the man. That's why this is a supernatural move of the Spirit of God in my life. He gives me something better than physical eyes. He gives me a, a spiritual sight to see what is real and true and what is a treasure and glorious, and that is Jesus. The rebirth gives us these new loves and desires. They've never seen him, yet they loved him. You have never seen him, yet you love him. And then the third, though, he says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Obviously, believing in Jesus and loving Jesus go hand in hand. If you love Jesus, you're going to believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to love Jesus. The person who loves Jesus can't help believing, and the person who believes can't help but love. Love and faith, these two crucial ingredients to any relationship that you've ever known. And of course, true in our relationship with Jesus Christ. When I think about this reality of believing in Jesus without seeing him, my mind goes, and, and Peter's mind may go there, but my mind certainly goes back to Thomas' conversation with Jesus. When, remember, Thomas wasn't there in the, in, the, in the room when Jesus first showed up. They had to tell Thomas, hey, Thomas, I just want to let you know we saw Jesus. Uh, he's resurrected from the dead. And Thomas says, unless I see him myself, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, come touch my hand, touch my side. And he falls down before him and he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus makes this statement. John chapter 20, verse 29. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus is speaking this blessing to Peter's audience, but to us as well. As we trust and love the testimony of the apostles and yield to the Spirit's calling. And, and just as an aside, you notice that he's already mentioned faith, hope, and love. We're, we're in verse 8, and he's mentioned faith, hope, and love. Right? Those are the three things that remain. He's mentioned them. Then he says, he's already talked about love and joy. Those are the two fruits of the Spirit. So Peter's just wrapping a whole bunch of stuff in here. That I think is very, very important. And then let's, let's so we got our, our first bracket, then we got our three sandwiched those, and then we got our last bracket here at the end. Our other piece of bread, if you don't think about a sandwich, right? You got one piece of bread and you got all the stuff in the middle, and you got another piece of bread. Going to Schlotzky's for lunch today. This relationship with Jesus, because of the work of the Holy Spirit and this salvation given to us, causes Peter's audience and us as well, to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The word inexpressible literally means higher than speech. Those of us in a relationship with Jesus 
When I say that, you immediately know what I'm talking about. You're like, sometimes I got a joy that I can't even express. I don't even know. I can't even put words to it. I don't know how to put words to this joy that I have. Now, if you don't know Jesus, they don't understand it. There's, you, you can try to explain the kind of joy that, that enables you to love Jesus more when things are difficult. And they don't get that. That's because this joy is inexpressible. Humanly speaking, this kind of joy is beyond human speech or expression. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And Peter ends by saying, obtaining the outcome of your faith. We've got this this salvation that gives us this joy by the Holy Spirit that is inexpressible. We can't even put words to the joy that we have in the midst of trials and troubles and difficulty. And Peter says, the whole time you're doing this, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our entire personhood will be saved when Jesus returns. That great glorious future that is awaiting us, that God has in store for us because we are in relationship with him, will be unhindered by the world, the flesh, or the devil. Now, I want to say something about joy because I think this is really important. Just joy as a concept. God does not give us joy for joy's sake. Okay, so let me leave that statement there for a minute. God does not give us joy for joy's sake. So joy is not for joy's sake. When you were a baby, this this is the way human joy works. When you were an infant, the first joy that you ever experienced is if you were blessed to have parents who loved you, provided for all the needs and the cares that you had. The first joy that you ever had were in your parents. Now, you you did not have the, the, the brain capacity to put it in words yet. But neurologically speaking, joy was going on. You felt safe, you you felt secure. And what that safety and that security did is it filled you with joy. And guess what you did is that you longed for a relationship. You had this flourishing relationship and you longed for the relationship with the people who were providing that for you. Okay, there is a connection that happens between parents and children. And it's because the parents at, at the earliest Possible place. The parents are providing something for this child that enables the relationship to flourish. The child has everything it needs. And it's interesting. Psychologists tell us that as we have this joy and this sense of security, we are able to experiment with our environment. You see, if you feel safe and you feel secure, then... and and. You're you're able to develop within your environment. That's why we start crawling. That's why we start walking. What, What if parents didn't help their children walk and crawl and we just continuously let them slam their head up against the brick fireplace? What would happen? They wouldn't want to walk anymore. Every time I walk, I get hurt. I hit my head and and I, I I hurt myself. I don't want to walk anymore. I don't want to. And that development would stop. But because parents are providing a safe. No, no, no. Let's go over here. Let's walk. All of a sudden now this safety, this security, this joy 
in the relationship with the parents causes the, the child to thrive. Okay? This is physiological and psychological and developmental science fact. Now, God created that all that way. That's all God. Okay? That's all God. So when that child is filled with joy, it is not so the child just has joy. It is so the child's relationship with its parents flourishes and the child develops and flourishes. That makes sense? So the joy that the child has in this safe environment provides a child with a flourishing relationship and development. Now let's talk about this with God. God saves us and secures us and properly attunes to all of our needs in such a way that our relationship with him flourishes. Right? When we are secure in Christ, joy bursts forth out of us, which is an indication of a wonderful relationship. The fact that God saves us, pulls us out, protects us, provides for us, attunes to our needs, then joy bursts forth out of us because we have now been made safe with God. Joy bursts forth out of us because of this wonderful relationship. But as the relationship grows, so does the joy, which causes us to want to draw closer to Jesus. And closer to Jesus. To the one who gives us the joy. So, joy is not given to us for joy's sake. Joy is a means to an end. God gives us joy so that we will enjoy Him. He gives us joy so that we will flourish in our relationship with Him. It's not just so we can have some happy feeling. It's not joy for joy's sake. It's joy for a flourishing, developing, wonderful relationship with Jesus. We have joy so we're drawn to him. Does that make sense? Now, I want to end this morning by talking about a research and experiment project done with rats. You're thinking, this, this is not the way to end this message on trials and sufferings and difficulties and having faith to talk about rats. But I want to talk about rats for a couple minutes. So this research project was done. And what they did is they took 40 rats and they put them in a basically like a rat Disney world. Now you're really lost. Now you're really lost. You're like, wait a minute, we're talking about rats and now we're talking about rat Disney world. What I mean by that is they took these 40 rats and they put these 40 rats in an environment where they could have everything they could possibly need. Everything they could need, everything that would make them flourish, everything that, would, that they could even think about that would be good for these rats, they gave it to them. They put these 40 rats in Rat Disney World, okay? Just this little bubble of protect you from everything, no harm, no difficulty, this is just everything that you need to flourish. And then what they would do is they would let these rats be in that environment. And then they took five of the rats out of that environment. 
and they sat the rats in a different place and they only gave the basic necessities to these rats. Only the basic necessities just to keep them alive. Then they would take them, put them back in Rat Disney World. Let them start experiencing it again. Then they would take those same five rats, remove them, put them back into barely having enough to survive. They did this process over and over and over again until they finally killed the rats. This is what, they're doing experiments, guys. They, didn't, they had to do this. So then they, they, they exterminate all 40 rats and they study their brains. And here's what they find about the brain activity of these rats. The five rats that experienced flourishing, then hardship and difficulty, then back to flourishing, then hardship and difficulty, when they studied their brains, all of their synapses, all of their brain activity, Everything that they could study was more developed than the ones who had everything they could possibly dream in, in Rat Disney World. What, they, what they're finding out about brains and what they're finding out about human brains is that we develop through difficulty. If God just put us in a bubble, given our state, in our flesh, and he put us in a bubble and put us in Disney World, but even better, and just put us in that Disney World and never made us go through difficulties and struggles and trials of various kinds, we would not develop into the human beings that God intends for us to be. He does this for us. He puts us in this, you, you notice this is how it works, right? A time of flourishing then back to a time of difficulty. Then into a time of flourishing. Then into a time of difficulty. And we sit there and we're like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Well, you know what we're finding out? We're finding out that that's what we need to become the humans that we need to be. If God just protected us from all the difficulty and all the hardships and all the trials, then we would never develop like we're supposed to. Guess what? That's the way God set it up. This is all by God's design. So spiritually speaking, when we go through trials and difficulties and hardships, we're being formed into the image of Jesus in ways that we, we haven't even imagined. Even mentally, even our brain activity is being formed into the image of the perfect mind, which is Jesus. Our minds are even being developed through suffering and difficulty to look like Jesus. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. It's not only my heart, it's not only my, but literally my whole personhood is being transformed in the image of Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, he's just going to finish off what he's been doing this whole time. And then the health, wealth, and prosperity is going to be given to us as well. You say, why is Peter, why is all of this being shared? To encourage the church. They're in the wild of this world. And Peter is saying, rejoice. Rejoice in the midst of your various trials. They're temporary. There's a purpose to them. He's making you like Jesus. And when he comes back, you're going to get praise and you're going to get glory and you're going to get honor for your faithfulness to Jesus. I know that right now you don't see him. Love him anyway. And I know that right now you don't see him. Believe in him. 
and trust in him because what's coming on the other end is a bunch of new humanity people looking like Jesus, full of praise and glory and honor who are going to rule and reign on the new earth forever and ever and ever. And if this is what it takes to get me there, then give me this. And we as Christians need to pray to God to give us this kind of faith more and more every day. I, I do not for a second believe I have what it takes in and of myself to do this. When I say give me this, I also mean give me this and then give me all the diverse grace to get me through this. So rejoice, church. Rejoice and praise God for our great salvation.